New guidelines for outdoor gatherings. This means your children can have a play date with their friends over the March break. And the troubling trend in new modeling data on a day of national observance for those who've died. The Stanley Park bike lane is coming back. Well, that's a big hit to revenue, and uh, I don't know where it's going to come from. How the park board satisfied cyclists, but disappointed those with disabilities. And the hero of Duncan. And he was frozen there in pain. Describing how she came to the rescue of her neighbor as his home burned down. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Just in time for spring break, an amendment to provincial health orders so everyone can enjoy a few more connections with friends and family. The key part of the amendment, though, is it affects outdoor gatherings only. Keith Baldry joins us live with the details of these changes. Keith, we'll start with outdoor gatherings, but there's mm -hmm. also another amendment that will cover St. Patrick's Day as well. Yeah, they're both coming on the, the one-year anniversary of the pandemic being declared. First of all, to so the social gatherings, uh, the new rule is you can now socially gather with up to 10 people, and it's the same 10 people, don't mix and match down the road, but the same 10 people, but only in outdoor settings. And it's come on the, on the eve of spring break when a lot of people would probably engage in this activity. Anyways, Dr. Bonnie Henry walking us through what is now allowed. We need those opportunities, particularly for young people over this coming uh, March break. So find ways to go explore in your neighborhood. Find ways to, to go to a park with some friends, to, to, uh, to connect in ways that aren't going to make things difficult. But then focus again when you're back indoors on the things that we know will prevent the spread. So some restrictions being lifted, but there's one being added. Next week, of course, is St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. You recall on New Year's Eve uh, recently, there was a short notice about a halt on liquor sales at 8 o'clock. Well, now restaurants and pubs are going to be giving more notice, but the same rules in effect. No alcohol sales after 8 p.m. on St. Patrick's Day. Again, Dr. Bonnie Henry making the announcement. We have consulted with uh, the food and beverage industry and had a number of conversations and they as well are committed to keeping our communities safe and making sure that we don't have those temptations that put their staff and their businesses at risk. We all recognize that importance. And, and in the spirit of that, my existing order for food and liquor service establishments will be amended. Um, so that liquor sales for on-site and off-site consumption must cease between 8 p.m. on March 17th until 9 a.m. on March 18th. So you can't buy any green-tinted beer after 8 o'clock on St. Patrick's Day. As the weather improves, look for other restrictions to be eased as we head into the spring and summer uh, as more and more people get vaccinated and the weather improves. All right, Keith, thank you. Now, Dr. Henry announced those amendments today, despite BC's COVID-19 numbers being stuck in the 500s. There are 569 new cases today. That brings BC's total to 86,219. 4,912 of those are active cases with 244 people in hospital. Sadly, we have lost three more people to complications of the virus. BC has now administered more than 366,000 doses of the vaccine. And Dr. Henry also shared the latest round of COVID-19 data and modeling. It shows hospitalizations and deaths are falling. But we are also seeing a troubling rise in variant cases, especially in the Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health regions. Richard Zussman reports. 
It's a community struggling to shake COVID-19. And once again, Surrey, and more broadly, Fraser Health, is a virus hotspot. While we have cases all over the province, some areas have, are dealing with a, a more difficult situation than others, particularly in the Fraser South area. Dr. Bonnie Henry presenting modeling data Thursday. The COVID-19 hotspots focus mainly in and around Metro Vancouver. The dark purple showing a daily average rate of more than 20 new cases of COVID-19 per 100,000 population in Surrey. In the last week, 863 cases alone in Surrey. The Tri-Cities, 241. Abbotsford, 183 cases. And in Vancouver Coastal Health, South Vancouver with 174 cases. That is where we need to pay even more attention to making sure that our connections with each other, those needed connections that we have, are done in a safe way. And if those connections aren't done safely, trouble could be on the horizon. If the current trends continue, this is what the modeling shows happening in Fraser Health. An explosion of around 1,200 new COVID cases a day in the health authority. Where we have concerns, of course, is the potential for what could happen in Fraser Health and in Vancouver Coastal. Spring break is nearly here, and although the advice is to go enjoy the outdoors, a place like this, Victoria's Inner Harbour, will not be as popular as it has been in years past. The advice from Provincial Health clear. Stay small and stay local. There are areas where we have a lot of transmission happening, and we do not want people to travel from those areas to an area of low risk, and we don't want people to visit an area that is high risk right now. But there's some hope in the form of COVID-19 vaccines. The purple line shows cases among healthcare workers, a targeted group for vaccine. Now look what happens to cases once people are vaccinated. They drop off substantially. How can we do things to get us through this period of time as more and more people are protected from immunization, from these effective vaccines that we have? The hope is more protection is coming fast. AstraZeneca vaccine is now in B.C., and it's possible the easy-to-move COVID vaccination could be used to cool any hotspots. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. There are continued questions and concerns over the latest outbreak at Kelowna's Cottonwoods Care Centre. There are now 11 residents and two staff at that facility diagnosed with COVID-19, despite it being one of the first in line for vaccinations back in December. John Waugh takes a look at how many actually got the shot. There was a plan in place. The province made it a top priority. Long-term care home staff were people who were first in line for vaccine. So why is 35% of the staff at this long-term care home in Kelowna working without at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine? I would expect that among those who haven't been vaccinated, there are some who have chosen not to. A COVID-19 outbreak was declared at Cottonwoods Care Centre on March 7th. 11 residents and two staff have tested positive with COVID-19. They do work in a care facility with older people and they put them in jeopardy. I don't know, it just doesn't make sense, you know. They should get the vaccine because a lot of them are bringing it in. Interior Health says it hasn't taken the time to figure out why staff at the care home didn't get the shot during phase one of the vaccination rollout but admits there were multiple opportunities. They would have probably had two opportunities at minimum. BC's provincial health officer says some staff may not have been available. Others downright wary about being first in line. Many had concerns. They had legitimate questions about these new vaccines. Vaccinations have never been mandatory in Canada. 
But employment experts say there are ways to respect a staff member's wishes without compromising the safety of vulnerable clients. Employer is going to have to keep that person employed, but move them to uh, something else where they're not interacting with that vulnerable population. In fact, Interior Health does keep unvaccinated staff out of long-term care facilities when there's an exposure or outbreak (laughs) of the flu. The devastating coronavirus, a different matter. If we were to implement that policy right now, we would not have enough staff to operate the facility. Interior Health says its current priority is giving the vaccine to those who want it. Families with loved ones living through another COVID-19 long-term care outbreak. Left to wonder, how is that part of the plan? John Hua, Global News. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. That was the moment one year ago the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. By the time those words were spoken, the pandemic had already started to impact the lives of many British Columbians. From thousands of shuttered businesses to not being able to see our loved ones, through to toilet paper shortages and mandatory mask use, the collective experience of these past 12 months has been a society altered in innumerable ways. Here's Aaron MacArthur. It's been a challenging year for us all. By the time the pandemic was declared, It was easy to see what was coming. Iran, Italy, the images were terrifying. But nobody could really anticipate what all of this would feel like. And uh, and I'll just stop there. It all started with uncertainty. And Canadians jumped into action. The hoarding started immediately. People kind of pushing their way through to get stuff like toilet paper is pretty much gone. But the absurdity of mass buying was quickly replaced with the sobering reality of how deadly the virus can be. Canada's first death from COVID-19 came in B.C. and as we've come to expect in long-term care. Lynn Valley Care Centre, the first outbreak in what has been a year-long onslaught on society's most vulnerable. The single biggest risk factor for an outbreak in a care home is the, the uh, level of spread and the level of uh, virus circulating in the community. As the spring marched on, people were forced to accept what became known as the new normal. Kids in virtual classrooms, downtown businesses boarded up, restaurants forced to offer takeout only, hundreds of thousands of Canadians out of work. The federal government pouring billions into social supports to fend off the next Great Depression. Whether you're taking care of someone who's sick, have been laid off, or are living with a disability, the CERB is there for you. Despite more than 1,300 deaths over the last year, BC has escaped much of the worst of this pandemic. The summer seemed relatively normal, but that respite was replaced by a fall worse than anything we had seen before. For public health authorities, this means implementing time-limited restrictions and control measures. The promise of warmer weather and mass vaccination have given British Columbians more hope. Let's have a moment of silence. Leaving the new normal behind means remembering what a year it's been. Aaron MacArthur, Global News.
Cycle-friendly Stanley Park is coming back. The temporary bike lane will be reinstalled, but not everyone is happy about it. What park businesses and the park board itself stands to lose next on the News Hour. A 10-year-old mugged on the way to the store. How witnesses stepped in to help. Coming up. And dangerous driving in a borrowed car. Why the man at the wheel has a lot of making up to do later on the news hour. Right now, though, no shortage of reaction to the park board decision to bring back that temporary bike lane. Cyclists tend to love it because it leaves only one lane for cars. But the businesses and disability advocates say the change will be devastating. As Jordan Armstrong reports, they say it shows the park board has no idea what true consultation means. Of course they're happy. One lane of Stanley Park Drive will soon be reserved exclusively for cyclists. I like not having too many cars whizzing by me. In a surprise to no one, the five-member Cope Green Park Board majority voted to pedal ahead with what's officially being called a trial, a temporary lane, until the end of October. Commissioner John Irwin thinks it should be permanent. For me, a big part of this is um, we, we are in this uh, climate crisis. Car-free park! But critics say last year's experiment often created congestion with cars, larger vehicles, and horse-drawn carriages all sharing the only other lane. Having cars backed up in the park, having to exit only out of one exit on Georgia Street, idling uh, continuously, uh, that doesn't seem like a very good uh, solution to me. Then there are concerns about revenue for Stanley Park businesses and the board itself. Parking used to bring in $5 million a year. This is inherently wrong. Accessibility advocates say it feels like the progressive board has taken a step back to the 1950s. It's not right to move accessible parking based on the simple fact that you know, it's not convenient for the bike lane. But Commissioner Irwin suggests some folks with disabilities may actually enjoy the bike lane. I actually saw some people in uh, motorized scooters and motorized wheelchairs also using it, and nobody, you know, who was biking complained about that. Perhaps you now understand why Peter Brown feels the park board isn't interested in listening to his voice. We've even heard the statement in 2021 that it's only one park you can go to other parks that is simply not good enough jordan armstrong global news up next proof a new police force won't be cheap for surrey this basically is uh, an alarming uh, salary base for deputy chief or deputy chiefs how manpower costs and other expenses are piling up. Also ahead, a guardian angel in the right place at the right time to rescue a man from his burning home. I'm Don Powers and Global One. High above, a crash on the Vancouver-Burnaby border. This is Boundary at Marine Way. Only the northbound left lane's getting by. We're seeing big east and westbound delays as cars are trying to merge on. Time to renew your home insurance switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Don Powers and Global One, high above the Vancouver-Burnaby border. A Freedom of Information request has revealed the salary of a newly hired deputy chief of the Surrey Police Service. The base salary is higher than the salaries of some senior RCMP officers. 
And some are asking if it's an example of competitive wages or are Surrey taxpayers getting gouged. Ted Chernecki reports. How much more is it going to cost Surrey taxpayers to get the same level of policing it has now? That's a question that's difficult to answer at this stage of the transition, but the RCMP union believes it has received a small insight. A freedom of information was requested by the group Keep the RCMP in Surrey and passed on to the union. It shows the Surrey Police Service's new deputy chief, Jennifer Highland's base salary, is $235,000. This basically is uh, an alarming uh, salary base for deputy chief or deputy chiefs, depending what the other contracts are like, uh, when you don't even have boots on the ground. The Surrey Police Board could not offer up anyone for comment, but in a statement it agreed that Surrey's new police service will have salaries that aren't the lowest nor the highest relative to comparable police departments across Canada. Vancouver's a very good comparison because of its similar population and policing issues. Deputy Chief Salaries in the Surrey Police Service's case with Jennifer Highland has a base salary, as we say, of $235,000, but it can go as high as three hundred. with benefits. Vancouver police have three deputy chiefs whose average base salary is almost $268,000 and with expenses come in at just under $286,000. So based on this, it appears the RCMP is a relative bargain compared to municipal police departments. Municipal chiefs of police uh, are paid more than, uh, you know, chiefs or superintendents or assistant commissioners in the RCMP. There's no doubt that Constables in the RCMP obviously get paid less than their comparative universes. We're working on that, uh, negotiating their, their, their raise with Treasury Board. In determining senior salaries, the Surrey Police Board hired a third-party consultant to examine what forces in 10 other cities in Canada pay for deputy chiefs. The RCMP union says 235000 is about 50000 more than a comparable senior RCMP member would get today. Ted Chernecki, Global News. And officers' salaries aren't the only focus of a recent Freedom of Information request with the Surrey Police Service. Global News also filed an FOI to find out the cost to taxpayers for public relations for the SPS. As Catherine Urquhart discovered, the bills are already in the tens of thousands of dollars. We filed the FOI request several weeks ago and just received some of that information. We also have some strong reaction. But first, here's a look at those expenses. In December, PR firm Navigator was paid $6,500, $3,300 in January. Also paid for PR services during that same time, Charlene Brooks. The contractor was $4,400 in December and $20,000 in January. In total, almost $35,000 was spent in just two months on public relations. We're talking a lot of money, $35,000 in uh, two months. Uh, That's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary amount of money for the residents of Surrey to pay. We're getting high-priced spin doctors to do work to convince people about uh, McCallum's police force that they don't really want. Charlene Brooks was not available for an interview, but in an email said, The contract with the communications firm was in place just prior to my arrival to the SPS. I was then contracted to provide communications services to manage the day-to-day. Brooks added that Navigator's contract is wrapping up soon, noting that this is a period of transition and that Surrey Police Service has a job posting for a permanent communications manager. Still, 
Critics like Brenda Locke say those taxpayer-funded PR bills are adding up. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. An ill-advised attempt to drive like a Hollywood stunt performer in a borrowed car sent three young people to hospital. West Vancouver police say the 20-year-old driver of a 2018 BMW thought he would impress his friends by drifting through a hairpin turn on Cypress Bowl Road on Wednesday, doing at least 120 kilometers per hour in a 60 zone. Well, he lost control, skidded across oncoming lanes of traffic, struck a rock face, and finally collided with a parked Mercedes SUV, which thankfully was unoccupied. The driver and two passengers were taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The driver, who was a learner, was fined $368. The car, which police say he borrowed from a friend, is likely a write-off. Up ahead, a little girl robbed running an errand. This lady came and grabbed me and took my $50 bill. Why she wasn't going to let the suspect get away with it. And later, our tribute to BC victims lost to COVID-19. I'm Don Powers in Global One. High above a crash on the Burnaby Newest border. This is northbound on 20th at 10th Avenue. You're going to find that the intersection has a left lane blocked off, and then right after the right lane's blocked off, so you're going to have to sneak back over. Kermac, Collision, and Autoglass have been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Don Powers in Global One. High above a crash on the Newest Burnaby border. Vancouver police are looking to speak with witnesses to a mysterious incident involving a man and woman in East Vancouver. The VPD believe the incident happened just after 8 o'clock Sunday night in a parking lot outside the Walmart on Grandview Highway near Boundary Road. A number of people reported seeing or hearing a possible violent confrontation between the man and woman. The relationship between the two people is not known. When officers arrived at the scene, the couple was gone. The VPD say they are looking for a primary witness to help provide more information about what might have happened here. That witness is described as a man in his 60s with gray hair and a beard, and he was driving a gray SUV. Anyone who can help identify him or the people involved in the incident is asked to call Vancouver police. And what we do know is that somebody, uh, at least one person, saw a man and a woman having some kind of a dispute uh, while standing near a black Dodge Challenger that was parked here in the southwest corner of the parking lot. This dispute um, was concerning enough to the witness that uh, he alerted somebody inside the Walmart store behind me and asked that person to phone the police. By the time the worker phoned to the police um, and came outside to uh, see what was going on, that vehicle had driven away. We're hearing tonight from a young girl who was robbed over the weekend. The 10-year-old had gone out to buy breakfast for her family at a nearby Tim Hortons in Vancouver. That's when a woman assaulted her and stole her money. Paul Johnson has more on the bravery Miranda showed and how she survived the frightening ordeal. Playing in a park with her family and friends. You'd never know to look at her, but Miranda Melgoza is presently one of Vancouver's youngest robbery victims. 10, I'm going to turn 11 in two months. 
just the age when you can start helping your mom, which is what she was doing when she went down to the Tim Hortons in Chinatown Sunday to get breakfast for the family because their stove was broken. So I, I went to Tim Hortons, and this lady came and grabbed me and took my $50 bill. And then I'll, I was trying to chase her. And then we cro she crossed the street, and then I crossed with her. And then she hit me on the face. And my nose, so my nose was bleeding. Luckily, she wasn't badly hurt, and her robber was arrested and taken to jail. But even the police were shocked by this one. Yeah, we don't see uh, this happen too often with uh, young uh, little kids, essentially. So, yeah, the fact that this happened, it's, it's quite uh, disheartening. Other cops on that shift felt the same way and chipped in to raise 200 bucks for the family to help with food and give them a little moral support. Ironically, Miranda's family moved here recently from southern Mexico to escape violence. But this story is probably not over yet. You actually chased the woman yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty brave. <laughs> to hear that a 10-year-old girl did something most adults couldn't summon the nerve to do says something. And it's got Miranda thinking about her future career. When I grow up, I want to be police. Now an aspiring policewoman. Criminals, take note. If you ever see Constable Mel Goza walking the beat, she's got a long history of not backing down to thugs. In East Van, Paul Johnson, Global News. Well done, Miranda. And in Health Matters tonight, a Made in BC app is helping save the lives of people who get into trouble using drugs alone. Lifeguard app launched in our province in response to the opioid crisis last May. The technology connects people who are using drugs directly to emergency responders if an overdose takes place. BCEHS says the app has been hugely successful, with users accessing the application more than 30,000 times. At least 15 lives have been saved. Although the Lifeguard application is there for people that are using drugs alone, it's still a tool for anybody else, whether you've got friends or family or know of somebody that's using or potentially just want to be able to support people if you come across an overdose. The Overdose app has many different features within it, and I would encourage everybody to download the application. It gives you advice on how to administer naloxone, CPR instructions. It has different connections to different services. The more people that we can get to download the application, the more the word will spread, the more people will use the application, and then the more lives we can also save. The Lifeguard app is available through the Apple App Store and Google Play. Up ahead, BC's spot prawn fishery thrown into chaos. We were absolutely blindsided by this decision. A baffling move by the DFO to crack down on a BC delicacy that didn't need it. And in sports, a BC basketball player making a big impact on the game south of the border. B.C. fishers say an abrupt change of rules by the Federal Department of Fisheries could threaten the livelihood of a lot of families. The change affects fishers who harvest those popular spot prawns. As Linda Aylesworth reports, they say in some cases it could cut their revenue dramatically. 
like so many, Skipper Otto's community-supported fishery in Vancouver is eagerly awaiting the brief but delicious spot prawn season. If you live here, you can get them live off the docks, but if you live farther away and throughout the year, you can get them flash frozen in tubs of seawater. Those little tubs, which are frozen on board, are at the centre of a controversy. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans has decided to ban the practice because, they say, they can't determine if any of the prawns within are undersized, a claim that baffles those in the industry. It takes minutes to take a tub, put it in water, unthaw it, and they're there. I mean, and a lot of the tubs we use now are clear. I mean, you can see the product. Add to that the fact that they haven't caught many undersized prawns since the 1980s, when the industry self-imposed larger mesh size regulations on their traps so the little ones could escape. We were absolutely blindsided by this decision because of all the fisheries. This one does not have a history of conservation problems. The Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans' response, our goal has always been to ensure the prawn fishery continues to be sustainable. But continues implies it has been sustainable. So what if anything has changed? And if there is truly a conservation issue, we would like to understand it and collaborate and work together to come up with the best solutions. Not a top-down, secret-behind-closed-doors decision-making. Not being allowed to freeze tubs of prawns on board could be devastating for the many small family-owned harvesting businesses along our coast. Especially those who are based in remote and Indigenous communities. Those are the people who are disproportionately affected because they don't have access to a fresh market. It could also lead to a shortage of spot prawns in our domestic market. And so a petition has been launched on Skipper Auto's website. People have been calling their MPs and just demanding some transparency around how this decision was made. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Would have been an amazing day to be out on the water today. Just mm-hmm. seemed gorgeous spring weather. And we have more coming up, Christy. We sure do. Yeah, speaking of out on the water, this is some of the workers there in Fort Langley uh, on, of course, the Fraser River there. Thank you to Jean or Jean for that one. And we had another blue sky shot from the Kalamalka Lake area. Thank you to Carol Johansson. So stunning spring-like right across the province. We officially change over to spring on March 20th, but this weekend on Sunday, we change our clocks. We spring ahead, so we lose an hour of sleep, and our sunset time on Sunday will be 7.16 p.m. I can't wait for that person. We're gaining three and a half minutes of daylight every day right now. There we go. Oh, no, I skipped past it. There you go. Three and a half minutes of daylight every day. And in four weeks time, we'll be up to 8 p.m., which will be nice because we can do that. Ten people gathering outside. There's a jet stream driving onto the north coast areas north of there expecting some snowfall. So rare, but uh, Prince Rupert, Sandspit, about five centimeters of snow for you, mainly through the overnight period. But that's the target of the moisture. And for our region, it just touches down into the northern part of Vancouver Island. So we are still on the southern edge of it. We may see some high-level cloud, but overall, we've got pleasant conditions, not only tomorrow, but into our Saturday as well. So double-digit conditions across southern BC, and we'll see that across the south coast as well. Uh, So on Saturday, we could see one of the warmest conditions that we've seen so far this year up to about 14 or 15 degrees. Sunday, when we change our clocks, we'll see a little bit more cloud cover, but after that, we still have lots of sunshine on the way. So the evenings will feel longer, and you've got lots to enjoy with that sunshine. And here's another look at the blue sky we saw today. Thank you to Sherry LaPointe for that one in Savona. 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 Did I there say okay, no, thanks. Yeah, no worries. Uh, you know. Now we know. Yeah. 
All right. Thanks very much, Christy. A 70-year-old Duncan woman is being hailed as a hero tonight for rushing into a burning home to save a 75-year-old man. Kylie Stanton has the story and the twist that makes her heroism all the more remarkable. His door was closed. Retracing her steps through this burnt-out mobile home now unrecognizable after an explosion inside Saturday afternoon. Well, everybody heard a big bang. At that point, there was people kind of coming out and gathering to figure out what the heck happened. But only Suzanne Fortin jumped into action. Instinct is just coming back in my hand, go, and I go. The 70-year-old ran into the burning trailer, knowing her friend was inside, finding him standing in front of the stove in an apparent state of shock. And he was frozen there. And I said, let's go, my friend. We're going to go. Fortin pulled 75-year-old David Muntz to safety, dousing his burns with cold towels until paramedics arrived. It was ready to blow. The rescue all taking place without a minute to spare. That's that. We saved him on time. While she's not giving herself much credit, I don't feel like a hero. The community says otherwise. We need more like her in the society, really. And Munz's family, well, it's difficult to put their gratitude into words. I mean, my hero, she is number one. But you see, what makes this story even more incredible, Fortin recently lost her number one. I'm become a widow, I didn't expect, but anyways, it's part of life, I guess. Louis Fortin died on February 23rd. He had been ill and passed away suddenly. When Fortin realized months was in the burning trailer, she couldn't bear the thought of losing someone else. I lost my husband, but he is alive. Muntz was transported to Royal Jubilee Hospital, where he's currently sedated in a mini coma. But once he recovers, he'll be welcomed back home. The trailer park has offered a trailer for him. It's good. Yeah, yeah. Fortan says she would do it all over again. She truly believes she didn't have a choice. Well, if your heart tells you to do something, just follow it. There's no other way. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Duncan. Words to live by. Pretty good advice for sure. All right, let's see what uh, Squire's cooking up for sports here. Squire? Okay, so Fardaw's AMAC is on tonight. Yes. <laughs> yes, we're going to have uh, Fardaw's. Uh, also, um, we just heard from Duncan. Yeah. The guy who was born in Duncan did something spectacular in the NHL last night. We'll tell you that. Also last night in the NHL, well, not so good for the Canucks. And Travis Green summed up why Vancouver lost 5-1 to Montreal, and he did it in three seconds. Their team was good tonight, and we weren't. Now that pretty much says it all. It's too bad because Thatcher Demko did his part, but not enough help, and the win streak is over. Also coming up tonight, one year into the COVID pandemic, a national day of observance to remember those we've lost. Still hoping for some good news uh, for junior hockey. Mm-hmm. I think we might have some, actually. It's not official yet, but we have heard from some sources, people that we like, that the uh, BCHL has been given approval and will play a shortened season starting in April. Uh, they'll have the games at various hubs around the province. 
official word and, of course, details should come down sometime tomorrow. Police are investigating a very serious bandwagon crash last night. Optimistic Canuck fans were strewn all over the highway after Vancouver's 5-1 loss to Montreal. Nobody was killed, though, luckily. Uh, that ends the uh, two-game series with the Habs. Montreal got three points in that series, Vancouver two, which means the playoffs, if you're still very much a glass-half-full type person, hoping for a late-season rally, are a little further out of reach for the Canucks. It was too bad. They wasted a good game from Thatcher Demko. He certainly wasn't the blame. It was the guys in front of him. We looked extremely slow, and uh, I didn't think we passed the puck well all night. We're not a team that can bring a CD game. Not many teams in the NHL are and get away with a point or a win. We, we deserved exactly what we got. Hey, look who's back. It's Daryl Sutter coaching the Flames. Oh, mask over the nose, Daryl. Well, he almost got it there. Uh, first period, not a lot happened, but there was a nice save there by you-know-who, Jacob Markstrom. 0-0, or actually nothing at all heading to the second period. And how about this from last night? Duncan Bourne, Nanaimo Rays, Dylan Coughlin, the third defenseman in NHL history to score his first three goals in one game. The hat trick. They didn't win. They lost 4-3, but still a memorable night for a BC boy. Speaking of which, there is a growing number of NBA scouts watching Richmond's Fardaz Amak, 6'11 center who is playing collegiately at Utah Valley University. Just this week, he was named the Western Athletic Conference's Player of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year. And the main reason he's getting those trophies and attention from pro scouts is because he led the entire NCAA in rebounding this season. There is no doubt that Fardaz Amak is the chairman of the boards. He gets rebounds not just because He's one of the biggest guys on the floor, but because he understands the geometry of it all. Uh, most of it has to do with understanding where the ball is going to bounce off of. Too strong. Fardaz Amek again gobbles the rebound in the post. I just try and place myself in the right spot, you know, hold my guy off. Once it bounces off, jump as high as I can to try to grab it, really. <laughs> the skills of rebounding and being a force underneath the basket first showed itself when Fardaz was at Steveston London Secondary in Richmond. That's a big-time rebound. Look at this kid. Look at this kid. That is amazing. Relentless. Relentless. Fardaz is well, lucky because most big guys kind of have stone for hands. He, was, he always had these nice, soft hands that he was able to tip a ball to himself or just outright grab it. If being 6'11 with weight, soft hands, and an eye for the ball weren't enough, Fardaz also has a black belt in martial arts, which his father teaches. And that's not just a physical accomplishment. It teaches one to be tough mentally as well. That's, that's probably the biggest thing that's helped me out a ton, you know, just the things that you go through mentally, like understanding, you know, different things, the discipline, you know, being patient. Um, I think all has really translated well for me. His father, Faramars, also instilled in him a mentality to never get comfortable and always keep working. Understanding that, you know, you, you might be leading the country in rebounding, you know, you might be this, this, and this, but there's always somebody out there, you know, that's trying to come and take your spot. He always had that drive in high school, but that drive he has now, is, it's, it's beyond. 
And that drive not only earned him the awards of Defensive Player and Player of the Year in the WAC Conference, it also means that Fardaz is the latest Canadian to make a huge mark in NCAA basketball. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, being a Canadian, you know, I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm proud to be Canadian. Um, you know, my goal, obviously, you know, in the upcoming years, I, I want to play on the senior men's national team um, and, and represent our country playing um, in, in the Olympics is, is obviously another goal I have. So, I mean, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely an honor, and it's, I think it's just something that's going to trend upwards. Fardaz Amak has it. Fardaz Amak puts it up and in. If you dived in that pond, lake, whatever you want to call it, you'd find a lot of expensive golf balls. Players' Championship, that's the famous 17. This is Sergio Garcia. Seven under today. Had two eagles. First time he's ever had that in one round. Uh, Corey Connors, one of the Canadians. There are a few. Finished third last week at the Arnold Palmer. He's uh, tied for third right now at minus four. What about our guys? Adam Hadwin. This is for eagle, and it's a long way away. Sergio Garcia had two eagles in his round. Come on. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. No, don't hit the brakes. He would get the birdie, though. I never thought I'd see the day. But he uh, only completed 15 holes at even par before darkness set in. Nick Taylor, two under, and he is tied for 12th right now. There you go. All right, Squire, thanks very much. Here's Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News at 11. Thank you, Chris. We'll have much more tonight on the announcements by Dr. Bonnie Henry about expanding our bubbles and new rules for St. Patrick's Day. Plus, we'll tell you what happened when a young man tried a dangerous stunt in a high-end car he'd borrowed. The damage was close to 50000 bucks. And it was a busy night for North Shore Rescue. The team and a night vision-equipped chopper rescued two groups of skiers who ran into trouble in the backcountry, including these two near Whistler. Those stories coming up tonight at 11. All right, Jay, thank you. Up next, paying tribute to those we've lost one year into the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, it's hard to believe that it's been a year, but now that we are marking that milestone in the global COVID pandemic, it's time to pause and take a moment to reflect. Yes, what a year it has been. B.C. was the first province in the country to have a person die of COVID-19. Since then, of course, we've lost nearly 1,400 more. And as we leave you tonight, a look back at some of the lives that touched us all. Good night. We begin with a tragic milestone in the COVID-19 outbreak in Canada. A B.C. man has become the first Canadian to die from the novel coronavirus. He was a resident of the Lynn Valley Care Centre on the North Shore. We are deeply saddened to, uh, to hear that uh, one of the residents of the Lynn Valley Care Home who was infected with COVID-19 passed away last night. And our heartfelt condolences go out to his family. Look at your mother's hair and her beautiful outfit. She was so styling. (laughs) So cute. Sandra Cairns was an altruistic, an accomplished nurse, and a well-traveled and highly respected civilian police officer. The province's ninth person to die in the COVID-19 pandemic. If she was able to say anything now from heaven, she would say, tell the world 
so that people are more careful. You can see how beautiful my mom was. There's not a moment I've seen them not going together. It was a true love, like a true soulmate's true love. Today I held his hand. I told him he was strong. St. Paul's Hospital ICU nurse Doug Ray wrote this poem after holding the hand of a dying patient. Ray Buchanan passed away after his 90th birthday. While at his bedside, Doug would hold the phone while loved ones said their heart-wrenching goodbyes. Today I held his hand and then the other held a phone. His family said, we love you. It's time to say goodbye. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Flozier Tabanjan tried desperately to resuscitate her husband Sunday morning, but he was gone. I tried to do the chest compression, but... 47-year-old Warlito Valdez was self-isolating in a bedroom on the top floor of the family's Richmond townhouse after he tested positive for COVID-19. Oh my God. On a bus shelter in Vancouver's West End, an unusual memorial one dedicated to the life of a neighborhood resident taken by COVID-19. In the early days of the pandemic, we featured Sam as she played trumpet outside her dad's Harrow Park care home. The lockdown prevented her from visiting him in person, so instead she gave her blind and frail father the gift of music. After all we've been through, our world will be forever changed. We have learned unequivocally that everything is interconnected, that nothing matters more than the health and well-being of the people we love, and that we are all willing to make incredible sacrifices to protect people we have never met. Let's have a moment of silence in the memory of all those who have passed due to COVID-19 and to pray for the loved ones and the families. <laughs> 